turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. The last couple of weeks, we are working through this chapter that includes Jesus' last prayer before his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, next week, we have one more Sunday in this, and then we're going to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I think that'll be fun for us. It's not a well-known book, and you know I like to do that where we do lesser-known parts of the Bible. So if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 903. As we begin this morning and as you're turning to the text, I want to introduce you to the intense world of seminary volleyball tournaments. So when I was in seminary, we had these things called formation groups, and these were small groups led by professors uh, that you were assigned as a part of your seminary training, knowing that all of the issues that you needed to learn about could not only be found in a classroom setting. And so these were an important part of our education. Uh, but there was a one-day tournament, a volleyball tournament, for these formation groups. And as you can imagine, with all of that athleticism in the seminary, it was quite intense. But this story happened my last year at Trinity, my last formation group volleyball tournaments, bragging rights and a pizza lunch was on the line for winning. And so our formation group gathered a team. Now as far as talent went, and especially again when you consider the population, uh, we were very average in our athleticism. So I know I look really tall when I'm up on stage, but in fact I'm not very tall. And though in my hometown, being on Lake Michigan, you'd play a lot of beach volleyball, that was something you did, um, I was never on a real sports team past 8th grade. In fact, as I like to say, the only time they'd let me on the football field was at halftime with an instrument in my hands. So that's who we had. But because we'd played together for a couple of years, we actually made it to the finals that year. But when we reached the finals... We met a team that even just looking at them, you could tell that they were way more athletic and many of them way taller than most of us. It was obvious that these players that they had had played at least in college, or at least in high school, if not college. And you could actually tell they'd played in real leagues where they had come from. But, as if in a movie, a miracle happened. We ended up winning the tournament. Thank you, John. Thanks for that enthusiasm. I appreciate that. I told everybody I was going to have to come back for another year of seminary if we didn't win. So... It was good that we won. But the correct response to this story is how. And here is 
how we won. How did our team of misfits beat this team of athletes? And the answer to that, the short answer to that, is we were a better team. We played better together than this group of better players. And so it's an example, and you've probably seen this in some shape or form, where the better team beats the better players. Because we came together, we were unified in how we played, we were able to overcome great odds and win. And it's that idea of the power of unity, the power of coming together not just as a collection of individuals, but as a corporate body that I want us to use to understand the text of John 17 today. Because just as a team has, if you're on a sports team, you have two identities, individual identity, but then you also have your team identity. There's a similar analogy in the Christian life that we are all individually Christians, but that is not the end of our identity in Christ. We are part of the corporate body of Christ. And that is at the center of John's text today. So as we look at the unity in the body and the prayer of Jesus in verses 20 to 23 of John chapter 17, we're going to see this. This is our big idea this morning in your outline, in your bullets, and if you're following along. The unity of God's people is a witness to God's love and a call to believe. So let's look at the first part of our text this morning, again using the outline provided in your bulletin, that the world may believe in Jesus. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Again, this is the middle of Jesus' prayer, and he's praying for his followers in verses 17 to 19. Then we get to verse 20. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this part of the text begins with Jesus explicitly and specifically praying for future believers. Now before, Jesus was praying for his current believers, the believers around him, and we were able, because the Bible was not written to us, but for us, we were able to make application to our lives, even though that part of the prayer wasn't specifically written to us. But here we see explicitly a prayer for future believers. Believers, and that is who we are. So what is that prayer? What is that prayer for those who in the future will believe in the good news of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. There is a prayer, a specific prayer, made for the unity of Jesus believers into the future. 
Now, as we look at these verses today, there's going to be a good amount of repetition. And so we're going to spend a little more time in these first two verses, whereas when it's repeated later, we'll look at more the unique perspective of the later verses. But let's look at this idea of unity, of how it is described. Because again, the prayer is not, Father, I pray that they be unified. And the descriptors help us to understand what the unity we are called to have as followers of Jesus. So let's look at this description of unity in verse 21. Right at the beginning there, that they may all be one. So Jesus uses the numeric concept of the number one to describe our unity. And when you break down what he is saying here, I want you to feel the depth of unity that he's describing. So you take a large group of people and you boil them down into one. Now think of that even just in our context here. There's probably 100 plus people in this room right now, give or take, And the idea of taking a hundred things and treating them as one thing is quite the display of unity. It is a powerful picture. It's better than saying, be really, really unified. You can't picture that, but you can picture a hundred things becoming one. Again, to go back to the idea of sports, we talk about a team playing as one. What are we saying? That they are acting with a fluidity, with a, an ability to play with one another that is seamless. And it's something to marvel at, that those people can come together with one purpose, to work together for their goals. We are called to act as one people, even though we are many. And if that standard wasn't high enough, let's look on to continue in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So it's one thing to say that all these people would act like one, but then Jesus goes a step further in this call to unity. That the unity of believers should mimic the unity that God the Father has with God the Son. That the standard, again, is not just be more unified, The standard is the perfect unity of the triune God. This means that our unity is a lifelong pursuit because it cannot be attained this side of heaven. And there's never a place where we can say, I've done my part, I'm done. That unity is perpetually worked on and cultivated because the standard is not just better than my neighbor. This reminds me of last week when we talked about the pursuit of holiness. 
What does God say? Be holy as I am holy. <laughs> Similarly here, be unified as I am unified. It is more than just doing our best. It is a lifelong pursuit of unity around our common faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the last part of the description in verse 21. Look again at verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Notice in these verses the repetition of the word in. And in this context, it is a relational word. And what I want us to see from here is that the basis of our unity is our common faith in Jesus Christ. It is not our opinions. It is not the songs we choose to sing. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our economic status. It's not our politics. None of those things are strong enough to really unify a people. The only thing that can unify the church is the good news of Jesus Christ. That we have a common faith in a Savior who forgave us of our sins, reconciled us to God, and gave us the hope of eternal life. That is the only foundational rock on which the unity of the church stands. But on the other side of that, if that is actually what unites us, then we can weather the storms of conflict. See, sometimes conflict among believers shows what actually united them in the first place. And sometimes conflict breaks down that relationship because the relationship was not founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we are united as believers, that is when we can work through conflict. That is when we can resolve differences. That is when our relationships are not disposable, but we are able to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Nothing else can bring about godly unity except the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as with last week, John does not stop there. Jesus' prayer for unity does not stop there. There is a purpose in these verses to our unity. And we saw this last week in talking about our holiness. Holiness is not pursued merely for itself. There is a purpose to a pursuit of holiness. And here, in the same way, there is also a purpose to our unity. We are not merely unified for unity's sake. Let's look at the first purpose found in verse 21. So that, good purpose word right there, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Your 
corporate relationship, your corporate identity in the body of Christ is actually a part of our evangelistic mission to this world. This, this, is, a common, this is a common problem we have, that we think evangelism is only one-on-one. Or we think evangelism is a great speaker who speaks to large crowds of people. But sometimes we narrow evangelism to one person separate from the church. But what Jesus is telling us is that our unity, our relationships in community in the body of Christ are actually a part of our witness. And the unity of believers actually says to the outside world, believe in Jesus. Now, sometimes this is because I can't believe you'd go to the same church as person X. (laughs) There must be something miraculous that unites you. (laughs) Or you see, especially in other countries where you have a diversity of people from diverse backgrounds, and it's like, what holds these people together? But I think we need to see that as we cultivate true community as a local church, that this becomes evidence to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time we serve one another, every time we we work to work through conflict, every time we live out our unity, we are giving evidence to a dying world that they should believe the gospel message. Unity supports our proclamation of the truth that Jesus was sent by God the Father to die and rise again so that all who believe and repent of their sins can be forgiven, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Unity is not just so we don't have the drama of conflict. (laughs) Unity exists to be a part of our mission to a lost world. Now as we continue on in the passage, like I said before, there's a good amount of repetition. Now some of this repetition exists to get it through our thick skulls but also I want to point out some of the unique contributions of these next verses. So let's look, point number two in your outline there, that the world may know the love of God. Let's look at verses 22 to 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now this part of the passage begins with Jesus talking about glory and the glory that he has given. And and what is this glory that he's referencing there? And the best understanding of this is that the glory that God has given Jesus 
and that he gives to us is our salvation in Christ. That there's an irony in the story of Jesus in that what brings God glory is Jesus' death on the cross. And so Jesus views his mission to come and save sinners by dying and rising again as his glory. But it also leads to the glory of living a life of following Jesus and to the future glory of eternal life. And so that's why I think he means when he's talking about this glory here. Helpful to us is Hebrews chapter 2, which says this, But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, and so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's one of the ironies of the Christian message, is that glory is achieved through death. Glory is achieved through faith in the death of Jesus, and glory is achieved through dying daily to ourselves. And as it relates to our text today, we see this glory, this the glory of our salvation in Christ is what leads to our unity. Again, you see in verse 22. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And as we saw previously, what unites us is our salvation in Christ. But in addition to that, we see in verse 23, again, a, a different wrinkle to what has been previously said. So look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The addition of the idea of perfectly there, of this idea that our unity is a growing and maturing, a process of unity. That, that this is, that unity is on one hand, a gift of God, but it is also something that can be cultivated and grown. We're going to talk about this a little later. But this idea that we as a local church, that we as a community of believers, grow in our unity. That we, in a sense, perfect that unity over time. Jesus prays to the Father that his people would be about the business of growth in unity. And as we saw in the previous verses, again here, there is a purpose to the unity. Look again at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, there is an evangelistic thrust to the purpose of our unity, that our unity speaks to the truth that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But again, an additional wrinkle here. Look again at the purpose statement. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
that our unity, that our coming together as the body of Christ, that our growth in community as a church family is actually a sign of God's love for us. That God loves you so much, he didn't just save you individually, he saved you into a community of believers. And we can all fill in the jokes about how sometimes other believers are not a sign of God's love, but you can all make that joke on your own time. But, when the body is unified, when believers are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are a representation of the love of God. And again, how does he describe that love? Look at verse 23. And loved them even as you loved me. That the unity of believers is God loving us with the same love that the Father has for the Son, perfect love. When we care for each other, we show God's love to each other. It's those times when we focus on what is most important that truly unifies us. Earlier, speaking about the arrangements that are going to be made for Trinette's memorial service, in one sense, funerals are a blessing to the body of Christ. Because it's really obvious to us what is the most important thing. It's in hard times like this, when we mourn a loss, that we are better able to prioritize what is actually important in this world. And it's no surprise that it's the difficult times like this that actually bring us together in real community where we make time for each other because we know it's the right thing to do. And it's in these times where we're serving each other, where we are making good priorities about what is right and good, that we truly see God's love in our church. And that the unity we see, especially in these times, is seeing God's love for us. There are times where I see unbelievers going through times like this. Again, a clear example is the loss of a loved one. And I see them struggle because they do not have that real community. And many of you have been through these times. And you know without your church family, you know how rough those times would be. 
And so again, we see when we are a true community of believers, it says to a lost world, this is how much our God loves us. And we demonstrate that by loving one another. couple points of application as we close this morning. Number one, I want you to add prayers for unity to your prayer life. When you look at a prayer in the Bible, one of the things you need to do with it, as we've done in weeks past here, is to say, okay, what is Jesus praying for? And that's usually a good hint as to what I should be praying for. And we've talked about over the last couple weeks, we want to expand our prayer lives, not to simply be praying for people who are sick or praying for our need, whatever that is. Right? And, and as I've said before, don't misunderstand. We need to be praying for that. Okay? But I also want us to expand our prayer lives, to mature our prayer lives. And one of the ways we do that is to pray for unity. Pray for unity in this church. Pray for unity between other Bible-believing churches. And pray for a unity among all believers around the world. I mean, isn't it amazing you can pray for unity about believers who live across the world from you. Because the gospel unites us in a way that nothing else can. Application two. Unity speaks to the outside world. How we treat one another is a part of our mission to share the gospel with those who have not yet heard or who have not yet believed. And it's very clear here, unity speaks to the truth of the gospel, calling unbelievers to believe. Unity speaks to the love that God has for his people. We're not just a bunch of individuals running around. We're part of a body, part of a church family, and that is a significant part of our witness to a lost world. Application three, and, and, and I've got a few things as part of this, so this is going to be a little longer, but unity is both a gift from God and something that we work to build and grow. And both of those things can be true at the same time. So we don't have unity apart from a gift from God, but we're also called to work and to grow and to cultivate that unity. As we think about this, I want to share some verses with you that help us understand both that unity is a gift, but also something that should be strived for. Uh, Because this passage connects our unity with God as Trinity, I wanted to connect you to some verses that do the same thing. So first, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
How does someone know that you belong to God the Father, that he is your heavenly Father? You work to make peace. We show who we are as followers of God by how we deal with conflict and how we strive for peace. How our peace relates to Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So much conflict that I see would be resolved if we would have the same humility of Jesus as described in these verses. That we'd look not only to our own interests, but the interests of others. That we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Are we eager to maintain the Spirit's unity? In addition to what has been said other places, are we having patience? Are we bearing with one another in love? Unity is both a gift of the Spirit, but it also takes perseverance and patience and sharing burdens to maintain that unity. Also, I want to connect unity to the community of the church. Romans chapter 12, verses 16 to 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. For this part, as we think through application, and again, understanding our place in the corporate body of Christ. In my experience, it is only in the community of the local church that we can truly hold ourselves accountable to what it means when it says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We need the wisdom of a community, of fellow believers, to know when to let go and to say, I cannot control what that person does. But as is more often the case, most of us will not go as far as we need to in creating peace. And we need the accountability of believers to say with truth, I've done as much as I can to live peaceably with all. And finally, Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. One of the gifts of Christian communities are leaders within that communities. I think of the elders that we have. And what Galatians tells us is that leaders in a church are not in charge of all of it, but must lead the process. I'm thankful for our board and the work they've done to restore people with both the firmness of the truth and the gentleness of love. But again, this has to happen within the community of believers. Let me close with this. We are called to be completely unified as believers in Christ. This does not mean there will never be conflict, but it means that we must always be about the business of working to maintain and grow that unity. We must seek forgiveness where we must, and in humility we must serve one another. And we must never forget that our unity speaks loudly to the outside world. Our unity speaks to the love that God has for us and the salvation that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this prayer of Jesus that we would see the standard of unity that we are called to, that we would be one as you and the Father are one. Now that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that you would use our unity as evidence of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that in our unity, people would see the love that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.